0: Our passage today is Mark 14, 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible,
1: Well, it's approximately 800 people a year assume a ton of risk and start out on a venture to reach the summit of Mount Everest. With its height and majesty, it's a thing to behold, and it's easy to see why it's so sought after by so many climbers. Not only was it be the the top of the world and the highest point that you could reach, But the majesty and the beauty that you could see from that place would be unbelievable. And yet the reality for every climber is that before they see the beauty of the summit, they must prepare in the ruggedness of the valley below, acclimating themselves, preparing themselves for the climb. And indeed, I think you find way less beautiful pictures in the valley than from the peak. Mark, in God... Chapter 14 is about to take us to the apex of his gospel, where we're going to see the Son of God lifted up on a cross where he is crucified and then he will be raised three days later. But before he shows us the pinnacle, before he shows us the summit, he prepares us in the valley. Before the the height, before he shows us the height of Jesus' divinity on the cross and in his resurrection, Mark shows us the depth of his humanity. Both are necessary for us to see so clearly. And so in this close-up view, in this garden of Gethsemane, Mark shows us Jesus' feelings, Jesus' resolve, and the disciples' failure. And all these things, Jesus' feelings, Jesus' resolve, the disciples' failure, all of them, they acclimate us for the summit that's to come. They, They prepare us. They propel us toward the cross that awaits Jesus. See, after the supper that Jesus just had with his disciples, he he takes them to an olive orchard, a garden, and he takes them with a distinct purpose. Verse 32 says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. Jesus has little time left. His hours remaining are quickly fading ticking off. The hour, as he says later, is, is ahead of him. And what does he do to prepare for this hour? What does he do as this hour kind of sits out lurking and waiting? He prays. I think it's hard to overestimate just by that simple verse 32 that he stops to pray. It's hard to say and overestimate the importance of prayer, not only for Jesus, but also then for his disciples. He sets the example for disciples. At a crucial time, Jesus stops to pray. Time is short. The situation is extremely tense. Death looms, and Jesus is probably tired. He stays up late. He stops, and he prays, which kind of makes any of our excuses of of not praying a little bit lousy. No matter what, Pray. No matter what hour lies ahead, Jesus leads the way in prayer. It's an important response for the people of God in following after Jesus, who in this crucial time stops to pray. He was not too busy to pray, even though he has world-saving things to do. He stops. He prays. And then he stops to pray here in this garden, stands out as well as does the rest of this chapter as unique. The garden scene is a unique picture into the life of Jesus. It says in verse 33 that he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. So Jesus takes with him his inner circle, his top three guys, the guys he really should be able to count on and rely on. He takes them with him to help him face this coming hour. And the reality is that these three should be the guys that he picks. These are the three that Jesus took with him as he went up into that upper room to heal Jairus' daughter. He didn't take the rest. He took these three. These are the three that went with Jesus up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus transfigured. These three were there with him. Also from these three, if you look back in chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 38 and 39, these are three that have pledged their loyalty to Jesus. In verse 38 of chapter 10, Jesus says to them, and he's speaking to James and John, two of these three, As they asked to sit his right and his left, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, here it is, they're pledging to him, they're they're able. We are able. We can do it. Peter, chapter 14, verse 31, says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. These are the three that have pledged, above and beyond, that they're going to be with Jesus. And so Jesus is going to pick out any three to take with him at this crucial hour to remain and watch and pray. These are the three. He takes them with him. Now, Jesus is gone to pray before in the gospel of Mark. He went in chapter 1, he went to be by himself to pray in chapter 1, verse 35. In chapter 6, verse 46, he did the same thing. He got alone by himself and he prayed. These are the only other recorded times in the gospel where Jesus prays and he does it alone. Here he takes three, which I think might signal to us the greatness of the distress that he feels. And how crucial of a time it is that he would ask and plead with some of his disciples to remain with him and watch with him. But to show the greatness of the distress, Mark does more than just talk about these three that go with him. Mark details Jesus' feelings. He lays them out for us and he tries to, in this sense, give us a taste of the experience that Jesus is dealing with. Says that he was distressed and troubled. And troubled. Says that he was sorrowful even unto death. And those three explanations, those three ways of describing his feelings, are all three words that are very rare in the New Testament, which again points and signals to the uniqueness of what Jesus is, is enduring, what he's going through here in the garden. They're all rare words because I think it's probably hard to describe the Son of God facing what he's facing. And so it's trying to find the right words. Distressed is used only in Mark, only in Mark's gospel. The word for troubled is only used in Matthew, and I think in the parallel passage in Matthew, and Mark, and one time in Philippians, and speaks of great alarm. The word sorrowful is also rare, not found in many other places, and it echoes psalms, like Psalm 42 and 43. Remember Psalm 42. Why are you in despair my soul, why are you cast down? Sorrowful speaks to the deep grief that he was experiencing. And he even intensifies it with sorrowful even unto death. And all these rare words are describing Jesus' feelings. They're not just words that Mark just throws out there. And like, well, I guess these will do. He even goes and he gets rare words. And he says, I think this is the only way to describe it. Distressed, troubled, sorrowful, even unto death. They point to the intensity of what Jesus is going through in the garden of the Gethsemane. It's as if the shadow of death is looming, hanging right over Jesus. And he feels its full weight. Its shadow has been cast fully upon him. And so he's sorrowful, troubled, distressed. It's an incredible description. And a little bit mysterious not easy to figure out. Can Jesus be distressed? Is that okay? I thought we weren't supposed to stress. Is it okay that Jesus is troubled or sorrowful, even unto death? You get the implications of that, right? It's almost as like it would be better to die than to face what he's facing. Is it okay that Jesus is like that? Or does it maybe embarrass us a little that we hear that of Jesus, we don't want a Jesus that's troubled, not one who's distressed. What sort of state is he in? Doesn't distress and anguish seem a little bit below him? But here's Mark's unapologetic answer to all those questions is yes, he can do all those things. He just gives it to us, describes it to us. He, He doesn't make any further explanations. He makes no apologies. He just states this is how Jesus is feeling. He's not concerned about it whatsoever. And you know what, knowing the nature of Jesus as the authoritative Son of God, the unique Son of God, uniquely in relationship with the Father, knowing Jesus as the Son of God and knowing the nature of what Jesus as the Son of God is facing, I think help explain how Jesus is feeling and I think can encourage us. He feels distressed, he feels troubled, he feels sorrowful. Why? Well, in verse 35, he's going to say that his hour, he wants this hour to pass in verse 36, in almost like a, a parallel fashion, he says, he prays, remove this cup. Well, the hour could point forward. If we look at verse 41, he says that the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed. So when he speaks of the hour, he's looking forward to his betrayal, which is going to lead to his arrest, which is going to lead to his death. And the parallel is remove this cup. Now that's a term that's that's full of Old Testament Testament imagery. If you look in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 22, here's what we read. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. So there's a cup there, and what's the cup full of? Wrath. If you look to Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15 thus the Lord the God of Israel said to me take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath So again we have a cup and again it's full of wrath from the Lord we look to Ezekiel chapter 23 verse 31 says you have gone the way of your sister therefore I will give you her cup into your hand what's in this cup you shall drink your sister's cup. This is deep, that is deep and large. And you shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with sorrow, drunkenness, and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation. Cup of horror. Desolation. So we have all these images kind of filling into this word cup that Jesus uses here in the garden. You see, it's this hour and this cup that Jesus is facing, and it's as if Jesus is tasting a a bit of this cup already here in the garden as if the father has, has taken that cup and placed it down in front of Jesus in the garden and he's sipping it a little bit. So he's facing all of that wrath, all of that bitterness, all that God has prepared for sinners. He's facing betrayal. He's facing abandonment. It started with his disciples, but it's not gonna end there. But he's not just facing those in this cup. He's also bearing them. He's bearing betrayal. He's bearing abandonment. He's facing all of this. He's going to take a cup. The cup is before him as one who is the sin bearer. The hour is in front of him as one who is the sin bearer. And notice that it's the cup and the hour that brings about so much anguish. It's not death itself. It's the cup that Jesus faces in his death. And one theologian said it this way, that the thing that Christ's mind was so full of at that time was the dread which his feeble human nature had of that dreadful cup, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. Maybe you remember in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah gets this vision in Isaiah chapter 6 of the Lord. He sees him lifted up on his throne. And do you remember what Isaiah's response is to this? We read it in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. He says, first thing out of his mouth, he gets a small glimpse of the Lord, and this is what he says. Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm ruined. I'm undone. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. He immediately just identifies. It's like it can't help but see his own sin. And how wretched and awful and horrendous it is in light of this holy God. Now it's interesting. Because he'd seen, chapter 6, verse 1 there, the Lord seated on his throne. Because he'd seen the Lord's overwhelming glory and overwhelming holiness. He'd just seen it for a, a, an instant. Just a, a glimpse. A mere vision of it. And then what does he do? He says, woe is me for what? The, the merest sin. Unclean lips. Unclean lips. Just something small. And he said that, those unclean lips, they, they undid him. Ruined him. And it would undo anyone in front of a holy God. The merest sin in the shortest glimpse of the holiness and glory and, of God would, would undo anyone. And what Jesus is facing isn't just the merest sin and the, a small glimpse of the glory of God. He is facing many Many sins. The sins of many. Luther said of Jesus that he became the greatest sinner that ever was. That's what he's facing. That's what he's bearing. Jesus is being totally exposed as a sin bearer under God's holiness. He's being exposed as a sin bearer to God's abhorrence of sin and it threatens to undo him. And this shouldn't embarrass us, it should encourage us. Look at the depths that Jesus was willing to plunge in order to save us. See, we can marvel at the love and compassion of the Savior who will face the, the darkest night of the soul in order to save sinners. One commentator says that the wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it terrified. Or another says that he grieved for me, who had no cause of grief for himself. And laying aside the delights of the eternal Godhead, he experiences the affliction of my weakness. And he's displaying his love that reaches Beyond the highest star and to the lowest hell. Both. And Jesus' anguish is actually can be not only explained but encouraging. It can be encouraging to us in our anguish. Did you know that Jesus faced great sorrow, sorrow to death? Have you ever faced that? Jesus did. Are you ever been greatly distressed? Jesus has been greatly distressed. Have you ever been greatly troubled? Jesus has been greatly troubled. He can identify with us. He can come alongside us in the midst. It's really, really hard for people to understand sometimes when you're like, man, I'm overwhelmed, and I don't know where to turn, and no one can understand. But Jesus come alongside you and say, oh, is it like this? Because I've been there. He can identify with us. He knows what it's like. The prince of preachers, the great Charles Spurgeon, was a man who admittedly struggled with what he called fainting fits, spiritual sorrows, great depression is another way we could call it. And he said to believers, he said, we need Gethsemane. One author speaking from Spurgeon's kind of vantage point said that the only the God only the garden of Gethsemane can free us in our anguish. For there we don't have a general who stands in the back in safety, demanding that we weary ones charge first into the battle. On the contrary, the Garden of Betrayal shows us our fellow friend who steps forward to take the lead. He runs toward the fight before all of us. He faces the enemy first so that we who follow are neither alone nor without hope. We see him sweat blood drops. We watch the cheek kisser betray his love for coins torchlight rouses the courage of the cowardly they bind our lord and mock him till dawn so we can preach this christ of the garden and the spiritually haunted discover the god who walks their path of mental misery who feels their pains of anguished burden and who beckons their camaraderie as fellow sufferers who overcome jesus is unlike all others There is no other that has run this path before any of us. And if you've been in those places, you have one who's already gone ahead of you and has come out on the other side and who wants to lead you and free you. So to the psalmist that cries out, why are you in despair my soul? Jesus says, I know what that's like. I can lead you out of that. To any of us who cry out of the depths of our soul, Jesus can come to us and say, I know what that's like, and I can lead you out of that. He can lead us and he can free us from those depths of sorrow and experiencing those deepest, darkest nights of the soul if we'll turn to him. Why? Because he went there first. And because he went there first, and because he faced that cup, we can be assured that if we trust in him, we will never face what he faced. It will never get that bad. Because he faced it on our behalf. And because he did, we won't have to. And so the descriptions of Jesus' feeling gives us a view of the depth of his humanity. Of what he experiences in order to save sinners. And in the midst of the sorrow of the cup that Jesus is facing, listen to the resolve that he shows. Although it doesn't first seem as if he's full of resolve. Verse 35. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Parents are quick to learn that there are, there are different cries from kids, from babies kids growing up. like There's just a different sound for different things that are going on. They mean different things. Some are cries of selfishness. Some are cries of, give me what I want. But there's one that becomes really, really distinct in the ears of attuned parents, and that's the cry of pain, the cry of need. And Mark is trying to, I think, communicate a little bit of that cry from Jesus here. When he says, Abba, we think, this is cute. Little babies are saying Abba Father in the in the cradle. It's so nice that he's talking to his father this way. It's not cute. It's a cry of pain. Abba. It shows us the intimacy that Jesus has with his father. It shows us his understanding of his unique identity as one who can call out to God in this sort of fashion. Like, you're not supposed to approach God in this way unless you have unique relationship with him as Jesus does. But it's a distinct cry of need here. It's not just cute calling out to his papa. He's in pain. One commentator says that he asks, could there not be some other way? Remove this cup from me. Right, he knows it's God's will, the cup Abba has given him, but Abba could have another cup. Can I have another cup, a different cup? For a moment, he stands with the millions of his people who have found God's will, God's will with almost unbearable, shrunk from the work given them to do, shuddered at the prospect of the race set before them and prayed that God would change his mind. But solidarity is not the main thing here. This is not a road less trodden, it is a road never trodden before or since. The cup of the one man, the Son of God, he shudders, hesitates. For a moment, the whole salvation of the world, the whole of God's determinate counsel, hangs in the balance. Suspended on the free, unconstrained decision of this man. And it sounds wrong again, right, to say that Jesus shuddered at God's will, but I think what we're we're seeing is something very unique, that there's kind of two unique views going on here, and we could talk about them from different kind of vantage points. There's, there's the view from above, from the balcony where the angels sit, right? They're, they're looking down, and, and from their vantage point, from, from their view, Jesus won't falter. The outcome isn't in doubt. They know he's going to stand. They're just watching it unfold, but we're not At that view. We didn't get seats in the balcony. Like we're we're sitting on the road, down on the ground, the lowest level. That's where Mark writes from. And from that view, what's obvious is struggle. Not the the end, but the the struggle in the in the fight during it to get to the end. There's turmoil here. And Mark writes, as it were, from the from the road, where the outcome seems a little bit murky, though it isn't, and where there's great turmoil. That's what we're hearing from Jesus. And so he makes this request remove this cup from me. That's his desire. It's not a sinful desire, but look at what he does with it. Look at what he does with his desire. He says, Yet, not what I will, but what you will. He takes his desire and he submits it to the Father. Here's my desire remove this cup, and yet, it's not up to me. He submits to his Father. And to his Father's will, he yields fully to him. In other words, he conditions his desire upon God's will. He says, this is my desire, but it all matters about what you will. He wields the, the weapon of prayer on his desires in order to stay in submission to his Father's will. I like what one commentator says. that says, Jesus is real about his feelings, but they don't control him, nor does he try to control God with them. And I think that th- this isn't a passage primarily about prayer, but it has a lot to teach us about prayer, right? And there's a good thing about prayer. He is real about his desires, but they don't control him, and he doesn't use them to try to manipulate his father. His desire isn't bad, remove this cup, unless that desire becomes an ultimate desire where he says, remove this cup no matter what, demanding it, or placing it as a higher thing than the father's will, and he refuses to do that. He denies that temptation three times we see he won't do it. But indeed, his remove this cup should not be read apart from the rest of his prayer. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And so, think of it: Jesus has this desire. He takes it to the fire in the, in, in, to his Father in the midst of this great sorrow, desire not to drink this overwhelming cup full of his own Father's wrath. Jesus shows resolve that no matter what, what you will is what I want not what I will, what you will. That's what I'm submitting to. That he has the desire not to drink of that cup shouldn't surprise us, but nor should his resolve in the midst of looking into that cup and saying, yet not what I will, but what you will. His commitment to the Father's will is evident and has been evident. He came. He was born. He then carried out the ministry that the Father had set before him. Right? He went to his baptism, where he identifies with the sins of the people. Right? Where he identifies with his, his own nation. He, he is tempted in the wilderness. He carries out a ministry. He's transfigured on the mountain, and he didn't remain there. He could have just like let's just this is this works. Let's just stop this thing here. He doesn't. He comes back down because he knows he's got something to face. Still, he does all these things because he is committed to faithfully carrying out his Father's will. And Jesus wants the Father's will, even if it means he's going to drink down the Father's cup of wrath all by himself. He says, that's the will I want, if that's your will. Now Jesus knows, as he prays, that the only way for this cup to be removed isn't for the Father to take it away, but for him to drink it down. Like, the only way forward is, is through. You've probably read that book when you two of your, your kids were going on a bear hunt. It's like there's grass, can't go over it, can't go under it, got to go through it. I think that's right. And then there's water, there's everything. And you don't go around it, you, you go through it. And that's the way to deal with this cup. There's no way around it, over it, under it. You're like, there's no other way. The only way is through it. The only way is to drink it all the way down. And Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for Many. He is going to go through this cup. That's why he says, yet, not what I will, but what you will. So he shows us his resolve as he faces this cup that's overwhelming. It's a cup that he faces alone. He asks his disciples to remain and pray. They're sleeping. He faces it by himself to drink all this cup down alone. And Mark makes this evident by spending a lot of the time from the garden scene, not focused on Jesus, but on the failure of his disciples. Listen to verse 37 and 38. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now perhaps the uh, happenings surrounding the the Passover celebration and them kind of coming in and out of the temple and being uh, harassed all week by various groups from the Sanhedrin uh, and the actual meal that they just enjoyed with Jesus in the upper room where they had some bread and some wine. Maybe they're a little bit weary. We're tired. We've had a lot going on. So maybe they could have blamed that and said, well, if you wouldn't have filled us full of this wine and bread, Jesus, we would have been a little bit more awake and aware when we were trying to pray. But Jesus gives the reality of their sleep. Here's the reality. They can't blame the lateness of the hour. What they can blame is that they don't see how weak they are. They're lacking some self-awareness. What does he say to them here? There's temptation lurking. The flesh is weak. They, they don't understand how weak they are, and so they fail to see their need, and so they don't pray. They don't stay awake. Jesus encourages them, right? The, the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, so you need to pray because temptation is out there. And if you're needy, and if you're weak, and if temptation is present, then you'll pray. That's reality. There's a straight line from neediness to prayer, from weakness to prayer, felt weakness to prayer. Notice again that the weapons Jesus uses, that he wields, is prayer. And he calls his disciples to wield those weapons as well, to fight against temptation and sin. He even calls in community, right? Here's two of our main weapons is that we pray and that we ask others to join us in prayer. We, we use and leverage the gifts of prayer and community to fight against sin. These are vital weapons. All disciples need them and yet these three disciples seem slow as ever to understand and to put into practice because look what happens in verse 39. Again, he went away and prayed saying the same words. And Jesus is persistent, the exact opposite is being found about the disciples. And again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they didn't know how to or what to answer him. And he came again the third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Now, at this point, the disciples haven't physically abandoned Jesus, like they're still there with him, but they've abandoned him. They've left him to suffer and pray and deal with this cup on his own. In Jesus' darkest night, they let him fend for himself. He's facing something indescribable, an indescribable weight. The cloud of death is hanging over him at this very moment, and his closest friends, those he's trained for three years, failing him. And their failure doesn't really seem that bad, does it? I mean, it's not like they're They're not denying him at this point. They're just sleeping. But it's a failure nonetheless. And while they're sleeping, Jesus was praying. And did you notice that Jesus' prayer got answered? Look at verse 41. It says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? He says, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of of sinners. And here Jesus has his answer from his prayer that he prayed. Father, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What's the Father's will? You drink the cup. That's the will. This is his answer from the Father. He didn't receive it audibly. He rises and he's betrayed. So he knows this is what's going to set in events, this is going to set the course of events rolling to lead to my arrest and to my death. That's his answer from the Father. And he's resolved to face it. He takes it. As one who is in the midst of his failing disciples, his betrayer, also one of his closest followers, is approaching. Jesus steps forward and he says in verse 42, seemingly content to receive the Father's answer as is. And he says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, the disciples' failure at this point is, is shocking. The betrayal that's to come from Judas is appalling. But what both of them inevitably do is propel us forward to the cross. And with their failure in his face, Jesus doesn't turn to them and say, Get your act together. Or we'll never make a band that's worthy of following when I'm done with this cup. He doesn't say, would you show some promise so that I could have a little bit more courage as I take this on? Jesus shows in the face of their failure that there's more to it than that. That his love is deeper than their performance. He shows that because of what he's about to do, what he's about to take on their behalf, that in him there's forgiveness, there's room for even the deepest failures. So he says, rise, let us be going. He faces it nonetheless. And because Jesus goes to drink this cup, is the very reason he can do this. The reason he can extend forgiveness is because he drank the cup. The reason he can say, rise, let us be going to the failures that are around him, and he can go face his betrayer is because he is resolved that that cup that the Father has placed in front of him is one that he's going to drink all the way down so that he can offer forgiveness. And so what I think happens is, let us be going becomes some of the most beautiful words in the Gospel of Mark. In light of all that's around him, in light of what's in front of him, to say, let us be going is beautiful. Shows us again the authority of the Son of Man who will take the cup from those it would drown. The Christ of the garden is the Christ we need, the one worthy of following. And worshiping with all of our lives, let's bow our heads and submit fully to Him again.
2: Let's pray, Jesus. This uh, this has been a heavy message thinking about my own sin and your willingness to die for that is hard to process but then to think about the sins of the world that you were exposed as a sinner guilty of all those sins is Impossible to fathom for us, Lord. We thank you. We thank you, Father, that you, in your perfect plan, sent your perfect son to accomplish a mission that only he could accomplish, Lord. We ask you to help us to be more self-aware, to see our need for you, our need to pray and trust you in all of life's situations and circumstances lord there's there's nothing too small or too great and yet lord in our sin we so often seek other comforts other plans other methods we're too busy to pray we're too distracted to be self-aware and jesus even in your perfection lord you you were self-aware That just confounds my mind. It's just amazing the life that you lived and the love that you showed us, Lord. God, help us to trust you. Help us to know that we have a seat reserved in the balcony. And while we can't see perfectly from that seat yet, Lord, we know that you do. And that your plan will unfold for every life in this world exactly. As you desire it to. God, help us to be brave and courageous in the face of threats, in the face of sin, in the face of of a world who hates you, a system that wars against the gospel, a spirit that is anti Christ. Lord, help us to be brave. Help us to no matter what, Lord, in the end. Pray that your will be done. Jesus, we thank you that you went before us. We thank you for that example you set for us. We thank you for the love that you showed us. Help us to be better followers for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.